This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I realize to, to whatever degree it is, for those of us who write in the room, you know what you are as a storyteller. And uh, what's important is to tell a story. And it rained this morning, you know, when I was coming over here, it was, uh, it was uh, raining. And I thought, about, I thought about a couple of things, but one of the things I wanted to share, because I saw that you all, some people have my Rosa Parks book. And I was just really thrilled because uh, I had the pleasure, of, uh, ultimately, of knowing Mrs. Parks. But, of course, we all knew Rosa Parks because she started the Montgomery bus uh, boycott, which is going to lead to any number of other things. But... Uh, it was a rainy day, and I just thought I should share it with those of us who are writers. It was a rainy day in, in Philadelphia, before Philadelphia had the big airport, when they just had the, the little, well, you all wouldn't know, you're Californians, but it was just a, <laughs> it's just a little jet, you know, and it was one of those messy days. And I shared, I had lunch with the BSU this afternoon, and I am a nervous person. Now, you all don't know that, you have no way of knowing that, but I am a nervous person. And... What I had really done is I was, it was raining and I had to go up to Penn State. So you have to fly up and you fly up on a little plane. So you know that one day you're going to die. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, it's not that, you know, you think you're not going to die one day. It's just you're not ready to die now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I walked into the little, it's a little airport. It was really not much bigger than this. And I was like, oh, goodness. And because I am a nervous person, and some of you are a nervous person, I like to always know where my back is. I always like to know what's behind me. I'm not a coward, but I like to know what's behind me. Because a lot of times what's behind you can be, you know, incredibly unpleasant. And so I walked in. And it was raining, so I knew that we weren't going to go on time because nothing goes on time from those little airports. And I looked around, and I found an area where my back was going to be to the wall. And that made sense because I have a skill that I'd like to share. I can sleep anywhere for indefinite amounts of time. I am wonderful. I actually slept all the way to Accra, Ghana from New York. I, I can sleep, and it's, it's a skill, and I'm proud of it. So... <laughs> So I sat down and had my back, and I thought, well, I'll just go to sleep until they call something. And I looked across the room, and it was one of those, damn, (laughs) that woman looks like Rosa Parks. And so I grabbed my glasses, because I can't see without them, and I said, "That's, that's Rosa Parks. So now I have an object. And it was like, okay, unfortunately, I don't want you to think I'm prejudiced, because I'm not particularly prejudiced. But the woman that she travels with is there. Mrs. Parks was there, and a white guy was there. I knew somebody had to move. (laughs) I was way aware of that. And I have to confess, I had enough sense to know I couldn't move the black woman. I'm not a fool. (laughs) So so I thought, okay, how am I going to move the white guy? I can do this by either walking over and saying... Excuse me, sir, you're sitting next to a legend, and I'd like to have your seat if you don't mind. (laughs) Chances are he would then want to keep it. Or I could do the black thing, and I just walked over and did that. (laughs) Are you going to move or what? And he just, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and he got up. (laughs) You have to know how to use your skills. And... 
I introduced myself to Mrs. Parks, and we actually became friends. And for my Delta sorority, I need to share this part of the story. As you know, Mrs. Parks moved to, uh, up to Detroit. Congressman uh, Conyers did, moved up to Detroit. And I had the pleasure of going up. She was a tea drinker. I'm a coffee drinker. And we were sitting one day drinking coffee. And she was a good storyteller, too. And we were sitting there just, you know, reminiscing, because my age, I'm 72, I reminisce a lot. And at my age, I, I said to her, you know, I said, you know, Ms. Parks, it's, it's amazing. When I think of your life, and realized you only made one mistake. It, it, it's amazing. And Mrs. Parks was a very calm woman. As you, Whatever you know about Rosa Parks, you know she was calm. And her face kind of fell, but she was in control of it. And she said, and, and, and what would that be, baby? <laughs> and I said, you went AKA. <laughs> well, you know, she should have been a Delta. <laughs> now, I know none of the white people in the room know what I'm talking about. <laughs> there are three black sororities, a.k.a. Deltas and, and, and the Zetas. And Mrs. Mrs. Parks was an a.k.a., unfortunately, but she should, have, she should have been a Delta. So we laughed about that. I just wanted to share that with my a.k.a. student. I was invited to write a poem during this. There was a period, there is a period in my life, I think, where I was writing long poems. And I was invited to write a poem about Mrs. Parks. And we're going to end up with a book that's going to be a little bit different. But when they asked me to write the poem, when I was invited, I should say, to write the poem, I realized that everybody knew everything about Mrs. Parks that there was to know. I didn't have anything particular to add. That you didn't, I knew that you wasn't tired. I'm not a fool. And I knew, you know, nobody's feet are just tired. You say, I'm going to start a revolution. My feet are, you know, none of that. And I knew that it was time that we stopped that, that you put a dime in to, to get on the bus and then you have to get off the bus and walk down to the back and then walk in and then walk in. And we don't even have to think how many bus drivers drove off thinking that was funny. What would be funny about that is way beside me, but I'm not here to preach tonight. But she was sitting there and finally she realized, no, she didn't finally. Mrs. Parks was the one who had, had checked off that uh, rape up in, up in Alabama. Mrs. Parks did a lot of, she lived next door to the head of the NAACP, Ed Nixon. So there was a lot going on, but Mrs. Sparks didn't do it that day. But in being invited to write this, I tried to think of, okay, if, if I'm going to write a poem about Mrs. Sparks, where does it start? We were talking to the writers, and this is not going to be interesting, I think, to anybody but the writers in the room. It has to start someplace that people are not looking for it to start so that you can have something to say that people aren't looking for you to say. The person that I'm in love with as a group, of course, the Pullman Porters, and I think the most overlooked group I'm, not a, I'm a history major. I'm a Fisk University graduate, a history major. But one of the most overlooked groups of people in America are the Pullman Porters. And we forget that every time Thurgood Marshall needed money, what did he do? He got on a train. Why did he get on a train? Because the Pullman Porters had received money from the blues singers, from the, the, the jazz people, from the people that could give him, but they didn't want to say, Nat King Cole didn't want to say, I'm a member of the NAACP because he couldn't work. Am I making sense? And so he would pass along the money to the Pullman Porters. And when Thurgood or one of his people would get on, they would give that money to them so that the money could go and do what it was supposed to do. So I thought, if I'm going to talk about Mrs. Park, Mrs. Uh, uh, Parks, I need to start with the Pullman Porters because these are great men. And it's something that all of us should know because they took the trains away. They got jealous, I think, and said, well, what we'll do, we'll just take the trains away. Ha! And it's a loss because those are great men who looked out for all of us. So this is Mrs. Parks, but this is for the Pullman Porters who organized when people said they couldn't 
and carried the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender to black Americans in the South so that they would know they were not alone. This is for the Pullman Porters, who helped Thurgood Marshall go south and come back north to fight the fight that resulted in Brown versus the Board of Education. Because even though Kansas is west, and even though Topeka is the birthplace of Gwendolyn Brooks, who worked the power for the Chicago Defender sends a man to Little Rock, it was the Pullman Porters who whispered to the traveling men, both the blues men and the race men, so that they both would know what was going on. This is for the Pullman Porters. Who, knew, who smiled like as if they were happy and laughed like they were tickled when some folks were around and who silently rejoiced in 1954 when the Supreme Court announced its 5-9-0 decision that separate is inherently unequal. This is for the Pullman portals who smiled and welcomed a 14-year-old boy onto their train in 1955. They noticed his slight limp that he tried to disguise with a doo-wop walk. They noticed his stutter and probably understood why his mother wanted him out of Chicago during the summer when school was out. Fourteen-year-old black boys with limps and stutters are apt to try to prove themselves in dangerous ways when mothers aren't around to look after them. So this is for the Pullman Porters, who looked over that 14-year-old while the train rolled the reverse of the Blues Highway, from Chicago to St. Louis to Memphis to Mississippi. This is for the men who kept him safe. And if Emmett Till had been able to stay on that train all summer, he would maybe have grown a bit of a punch, certainly lost his hair, probably have worn bifocals, and bounced his grandchildren on his knee, telling them about the summer riding the rails. But he had to get off that train and ended up in Money, Mississippi, and was horribly, brutally, inexcusably, and unacceptably murdered. This is for the Pullman porters who, when the sheriff was trying to get the body secretly buried, got Emmett's body on the northbound train, got his body home to Chicago, where his mother said, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. And this is for all the mothers who cried. And this is for all the people who said, never again. And this is about Rosa Parks, whose feet were not so tired. It had been, after all, an ordinary day until the bus driver gave her the opportunity to make history. This is about Mrs. Rosa Parks from Tuskegee, Alabama, who was also the field secretary of the NAACP. This is about the moment Rosa Parks shouldered her cross, put her worldly goods aside, and was willing to sacrifice her life so that that young man in Money, Mississippi, who was so well protected by the Pullman Porters, would not have died in vain. When Mrs. Park said no, a passionate movement was begun. No longer would there be a reliance on the law. There was a higher law. When Mrs. Parks brought that light of hers to expose the evil of the system, the law came and rested on her shoulders, bringing the heat and light of truth. Others would follow Mrs. Parks. Four young men in Greensboro, North Carolina, would also say no. Great voices would be raised, singing the praises of God and exhorting us to forgive those who trespassed against us. But it was the Pullman Porters who safely got Emmett to his granduncle. And it was Mrs. Rosa Parks who could not stand that death. And in not being able to stand it, she sat back down. It's as if you've been invited to the White House and you know you're going to smile. So you want your teeth to be bright and you brush and brush because you have a partial plate and you are mostly brushing your gums. And quite naturally, since you want to look fabulous and make the First Lady green with envy because you actually have on your only designer suit and a blouse that, if you were honestly, you can't actually afford. But the girl in Saks was so nice and the girl who approved the charge heard the panic in your voice and she, after all, had never been invited to the White House and what's more, probably never would. So she said, 
Why, yes, I will approve this charge. But do you think you might want to pay us something this month? And you you said, absolutely, because you do want to pay something. It's just that food and shelter, <laughs> and so yes, have you, and just that food and, and, and shelter run up against what you want to pay, and you will, and maybe you can't, but that's what's so hard for people to understand, that distance between want and able, you know, and that's what we want to talk about. So, of course, I remember Lena Horne singing polka dots and moonbeams and my grandmother being totally delighted with RCA Victor TV and her saying to Grandpapa, we better get Nikki up because Lena Horne is on TV. And me not quite knowing who Lena Horne was at that point, though now recognizing that she is a great lady who has fought long and hard for civil rights, who is also a lady of Delta Sigma Theta and who looks so fabulous in the Gap jeans that all the world now wants to be 80 years old and look that good at the Gap. So it was very smart of them to ask to photograph Lena in those jeans. And who was very kind to me when I began my career. And who has remained very kind. But that's not the point of her being on TV when very few black people were on television, whether or not they were very talented. And haven't we come a long way, though quite naturally we have a bit of a way to go. My grandmother, you see, always said, if you earn a dollar, save a dime. And it's not that my grandfather in any way disagreed, but he was more casual about the needing and having. So I'm sure it was grandmother who saved for the RCA Victor TV. And even at that, I have to acknowledge that she was more intrigued with Nipper, that even if you had done nothing more than show the dog responding to its head, I don't know if you ever seen his master's voice, grandmother would have thought she made a good purchase, though the TV also brought us Lena Horn. So grandmother was a believer, and so am I. But that's a bit off point. Only because Billie Holiday, who sang the definitive, I wished on the moon for something I never knew. And to hear her sing like that, even though because of dumb, restrictive drug rules that punish some people for drugs, though not others for others, she would never be on TV, which was a total loss of us who wished on the moon while observing strange fruits that traveled light. And we knew that hearing that holiday moan that the moon granted wishes. So I started singing thinking. If I could throw a note high enough and strong enough, there would be the possibility that it would be heard somewhere in space. And that is what I want to talk about here. Science teaches us that there is no sound in space. And I think that's hogwash. Because if there's no sound in space, how will all those wishes get up to the moon? And anyone with an ounce of sense knows science fiction is much better than science fact because science tries to teach us to prove things like Thomas Jefferson was in diddling Sally Hemings. And everybody... (laughs) And everybody knows people diddle people all the time, especially when they can't say no. So, yes, there is sound in space. And a large part of it says, I love you, in a lot of different ways. And when the language is unknown to the hearer, the other people say things like, that's Gerberish. But love can never be Gerberish. Foolish for sure. Silly, you bet. But the basis of all relationships is love, which is then followed by trust. And not the other way around, because if trust was the basis, there would be peace and, 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 and safe international travel. But what I want to point out, since, I'm always, since it's always so important to do something useful, is that you should quite naturally floss. <laughs> and nickels and dimes have a relationships with dollars and cents, but not halves and quarters. And machines that tell you deposit more money and good luck, when it isn't luck that you need, but better science, which can explain how and why, when all is said and done, we are left with this destiny that forces us to recognize the ego nebula is falling into itself. 
and will one day be a planet, though mostly we will not be around to see it. And then there will be those troublesome black holes, which are so totally fascinating, though no one can exactly put their finger on what makes them so important. And I am here to tell you, I know. The density of a black hole does not prevent life from escaping, but rather, once light encounters the black hole, it finds such beauty and peace and comfort, it no longer needs to search, which is another word for love, and I do. I'm a, I'm a space freak, and you probably have gathered that. But one of the things that we know is that the space program cannot be a science program. Scientists only make real what the creative writers have imagined. We're the ones that say, there ought to be a rocket, and then they say, oh, I can do that. But they would never come to us and say, I want to make something. We're the ones who think it up. I don't care what, it, it was Jules Verne that said, if we are going into space, if we are going to the moon, from Earth to moon, this is where we should go from. And they only missed it by 100 feet, 100 uh, uh, miles. They, they missed what, what Verne said that. They went, but it was a creative writer who said, this is where we have to go. And for those of us in this room who are creative writers, you've got to begin to imagine what is the rest of the universe like. And one of the best ways to imagine that, in all fairness to everybody, is you've got to learn something about black Americans. Because how in the world did we come here with a song, create a dance, do another song, put up with a lot of hatefulness, and still find a way to love, still find a few months ago when some fool shoots nine people in church, being able to come to, to say to him, I forgive you, we forgive you. These are great people, and it's time that we embrace that greatness. It really is. So I wrote a poem because I'm, I'm a fan. I want to go to Mars, but for you high school kids, if you're not smoking, don't smoke. My generation, no, I just thought I should mention it because I smoked, and one of the, the, the problems is that I ended up with lung cancer. And it, it is amazing to me, we were talking earlier about it, Brent. It is amazing to me that tobacco, which will kill you, is legal, and marijuana, which will only make you happy, is not. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't. But nobody asked me. But don't smoke, for those of you who are high school, because the reason I can't go into space, well, I can. I can go to space, but I can't come back because my left lung, because I had cancer, my left lung, I'm lucky to be alive, my left lung was taken out. And in coming back, I can go into a non-gravity situation, but in coming back, if I come back into gravity, my stomach or my, it, it's no telling my other, things will move around in my body and it'll kill me, so they can't do that. I'm trying to make a deal, by the way, and you all are intelligent, you're college people, most of you. I'm trying to make a deal with NASA. The people in my family, the average age in, in my father's family are all dead. I'm 72, they're all, the Giovannis are all gone. But my mother is a Watson, and the Watsons live a long time. My 
Aunt, my cousin B lived to be 106. At one point, she was the oldest person on earth. But I'm not going to live to be 106. I don't have any illusion like that. But I figure probably I'll live into my mid-80s. And what I would like for them to do is to send me into space, send me up to, to you know, Mars or someplace. And when I die in 10 years or so, just open the door and let me out. <laughs> well, you know you're going to die anyway. You're born, you're going to die. And then, then the kids can look up and, and you, oh, there goes Nikki, you see? <laughs> I, think it would be, I think it would be great. I wrote a poem because I'm a space freak. It's called Quilting the Black Eyed Pea, We're Going to Mars. We're going to Mars for the same reason Marco Polo rocketed to China, for the same reason Columbus trimmed his sails on the dream of spices, for the very same reason Shackleton was enchanted with penguins, for the reason we fall in love. It's the only adventure. We're going to Mars because Perry couldn't go to the North Pole without Matthew Henson, because Chicago couldn't be a city without John Baptiste de Saville, because George Washington Carver and his peanut were the right partners for Booker T. It's a life-seeking thing. We're going to Mars because whatever is wrong with us will not get right with us, so we journey forth carrying the same baggage, but every now and then leaving one little bitty thing behind. Maybe torturing hunchbacks here, maybe drop lynching billy buds there, maybe not whipping Uncle Tom to death, maybe resisting global war, one day looking for prejudice to slip, one day looking for hatred to tumble by the wayside, one day maybe the whole community will no longer be vested in who sleeps with whom. Maybe one day the Jewish community will be at rest, the Christian the Christian community will be content, the Muslim community will be at peace, and all of us will get great meals at holy days and learn new songs and sing in harmony. We're going to Mars because it gives us a reason to change. If Mars came here, it would be ugly. Nations would band together to hunt down and kill Martians, and being the stupid, undeserving life forms that we are, we would, un- uh, we would, we would also hunt down and kill those who would be termed Martian sympathizers. As if the fugitive slave law wasn't bad enough then, as if the so-called war on terrorism isn't pitiful now. When do we learn, and what does it take to teach us? Things cannot be what we want, when we want, as we want. Other people have ideas and inputs, and why won't they leave Rap Brown alone? The future is ours to take. We're going to Mars because we have the hardware to do it. We have the rockets and the fuel and the money and the stuff. And the only reason NASA is holding back is they don't know if what they send out will be what they get back. So let me slow this down. Mars is one year of travel to get there, one year of living on Mars, plus one year to return to Earth equals three years of Earthlings being in a tight space, going to an unknown place with an unsure welcome awaiting them. Tired muscles, unknown and unusual foods, harsh conditions, and no known landmarks to keep them human. Only a hope and a prayer that they will be shadowed beneath a benign hand. And there is no historical precedence for that except this. The trip to Mars can only be understood through black Americans, I say. The trip to Mars can only be understood through black Americans. The people who were captured and enslaved immediately recognized the men who chained and whipped them and herded them into ships so tightly packed there was no room to turn, no privacy to respect, no tears to fall without landing on another, were not kind and gentle and concerned for the state of their souls, no. The men with the whips and chains were understood to be killers, feared to be cannibals, known to be sexual predators. The captured knew they were in trouble in an unknown place without communicable abilities with a violent and capricious species, but they could look out and still see signs of home. They could still smell the sweetness in the air. They could smell the clouds. They could see the clouds floating above the land they loved. But they reached a point where the captured could not only not look back, 
They had no idea which way back might be. There was nothing in the middle of the deep blue water to indicate which way home might be. And it was that moment when a decision had to be made. Do they continue forward with the resolve to see this thing through? Or do they embrace the waters and find another world? In the belly of the ship, a moan was heard. And, that, and someone picked up that moan. And a song was raised. And that song would offer comfort and hope and tell the story. When we go to Mars, it's the same thing. It's Middle Passage. When the rocket red glares, the astronauts will be able to see themselves pull away from Earth. As the ship goes deeper, they will see a sparkle of blue. And then one day, not only will they not see Earth, they don't, but they won't know which way to look, which is why NASA needs to call Black America. They need to ask us, how did you calm your fears? How were you able to decide you were human, even in the face of every, even when everything said you were not? How did you find comfort in the face of the improbable to make the world you came to your world? How was your soul able to look back and wonder? And we will tell them what to do. To successfully go to Mars and back, you will need a song. Take some Billie Holiday for the sad days and some Charlie Parker for the happy ones. But always keep at least one good spiritual for comfort. You will need a slice or two of meatloaf, <laughs> if you can manage it, and some fried chicken in a shoebox with a nice, moist lemon pound cake, a bottle of beer because no one should go that far without a beer, and maybe a six-pack so that if there is life on Mars, you can share. <laughs> Popcorn for the celebration when you land while you wait on your land lace to kick in. And as you climb down the ladder from your spaceship to the Martian surface, look to your left, and there you'll see a smiling community quilting a black-eyed pea watching you descend. <laughs> I'm always uh, falling in love. I recommend it. You're not doing anything, fall in love. It, always, it makes you helpful. And so I'm going to end on a love poem, if I can find it. Because men are always making decisions about what women. Are any of you all Downton uh, uh, Abbey fans? I love, I love Downton Abbey. I really do. And now that Mr. Carson got married last week, she made him cook. I was, <laughs> I was so happy for her because men always act like, you know, women don't do anything. And it's really funny because they say men work and women stay home. But I know better, and so do all of the women who have stayed. We, we have to clean the house. We have to cook. We have to be nice to them when they come. I mean, it's just, we work very, very hard. This is a poem, though, because it, I'm always falling in love. <laughs> and this is a poem because I was in love with somebody who, unfortunately, uh, at that point, wasn't in love with me. And you really hate it when they're not in love with you, because then by the time they fall in love with you, you're in love with somebody else. And, <laughs> you know, it's not a lifetime situation. <laughs> but I thought that, you know, I should let it be known. I'm in love, and I'm going to get a poem out of it, if nothing else. And it, <laughs> And I did. I didn't get anything else out of it, but it, <laughs> it was nice to get the point. It's called Still Life with Apron. I would like to see you cooking. I would like for you to cook for me. I would like to see you decide upon a menu, go to the market and pick the fruit, the vegetables, the fish. I would like to see you smell the fish, test the flesh for firmness and freshness. I would like to watch you in the bakery, in the bakery by the dinner rolls, deciding. Rolls are crusty bread. I would watch you run back to get the goat butter. 
I would like to be sitting in a corner and you intent upon your meal, not noticing me when you go to the wine store. I would watch you wrestle with red or white. White, of course, because it's fish, but red is seductive. Whoever fell in love over a glass of white wine? (laughs) I, uncharacteristically on time, would like you to greet me in a butcher's apron. I would like to watch you greet me only in an apron. You would ask me to undress, to undress for you. Before I sit down at the beautiful table, before you hand me my glass, you would ask me to undress. I would like to watch you watch me undressing for you. I would like to watch the movement inside the apron as I undress for you. I would like to watch you walk, no, run, no, stroll to your closet where you bring out your old buffalo plaid dressing gown, your pilly, much-washed dressing gown that smells like you after you brush your teeth, after you shower, after you comb your hair. I would like to embrace your odor, your odor, your essence, as we sit down to eat. I would like for you to cook for me. I would like that very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.